This is Remembering Yugoslavia, the show exploring the memory of a country that no longer exists. I'm your guide, Peter Korchnak. This past February, Croatia Records reissued the new wave compilation album Paket Aranjman, Package Arrangement or Package Deal, on the 40th anniversary of its release in 1981. Accompanying the re-release of the remastered album, broad cultural media coverage, analyses and other events around the post-Yugoslav region and beyond, including exhibitions and documentaries. This was not an isolated event. For some two decades now, the 1980s have been a rich referential resource for culture makers across ex-Yugoslavia, and globally of course. Re-releases and reunion tours, music echoing the 80s sound, documentaries, TV shows, movies, theater productions, art retrospectives, exhibitions. Now that we've entered the temporal territory of 40th anniversaries of this and that from the era, it's clear the cultural virus of the 1980s continues to afflict the region of former Yugoslavia. Why is that? What is it about the 80s culture that is so worth reviving and that is so inspiring decades later? And where do we go from here? Today on Remembering Yugoslavia, the persistence of the 1980s in post-Yugoslav culture. A couple of notes before I take the trip down memory lane. First, the songs you'll hear in this episode are courtesy of their creators and labels. Please buy their music on Bandcamp. All the links are included in the episode blog post at rememberingyugoslavia.com podcast. And secondly, as always, Remembering Yugoslavia is brought to you by you. It is your support that makes this podcast and the stories and analysis you hear possible. Thank you to everyone who has contributed on Patreon or via PayPal. Today I welcome new supporters Daniel and Tiago, and extend special thanks to Billy for his contribution. If you like the show and wish to support it, and me in making it, join these generous people and go to rememberingyugoslavia.com donate and select from one of the options there. In order to properly assess the ongoing 80s craze in the post-Yugoslav territory, let's first look at the decade itself. The 80s were, you know, very curious times. That's Mitya Velikonia from the University of Ljubljana. Having lived half his life in socialism in Yugoslavia and half in capitalism in independent Slovenia, he has made it his academic business to study the cultural memory of socialism in Yugoslavia. I interviewed Velikonia extensively in episode 30, Mitya from the Russian blocs and the deficit of Yugoslavia. On one side, you know, there was economic crisis. The this political system was losing legitimation, you know. No one believed anymore, you know, in, in the politics as it was ruled at that time. They were starting to have ethnic and social tensions. So on one side, Yugoslavia was collapsing. Yugoslavia's 1974 constitution culminated a series of decentralization reforms based on the concept of self-management with a twofold aim. To maintain the legitimacy of socialism and by extension of the Communist Party and the state, and to ease ethnic and national tensions which were increasingly manifesting the inter-republican disputes. But while outwardly maintaining its federal status, by the time Tito died in 1980, Yugoslavia essentially fragmented into a de facto confederation comprising six independent economies with loose mutual economic ties pursuing their own interests at the federal expense. This fragmentation only increased in the 1980s, eventually leading to a nearly total gridlock of federal decision making. The boom Yugoslavia had experienced from the late 1950s through 1970s was largely financed by borrowing, American financial aid and IMF loans. In the 1980s, a lot of these loans came due. The oil shocks in the 1970s and the resulting worldwide recession roiled Yugoslavia's economy. The IMF imposed austerity measures which led to increasingly frequent strikes. Inflation grew throughout the decade, reaching 1,000% in 1989. 
Official unemployment ballooned to 17%, with youth particularly affected with rates as high as 60%. Many large companies went bankrupt, wages were frozen, and real earnings fell by a quarter by mid-decade. There were periodic shortages of electricity, petrol, and staple goods, even food. Divorces, drug addiction, and the perceptions of threats to ethnic and national groups from other groups increased. Throughout its existence, Yugoslavia also strived to foster solidarity among its constituent ethnic groups and nations with the policy of equalizing the uneven regional economic development across the country. By the 1980s, it was obvious the equalization policy had failed. Thanks to the economic crisis, the disputes concerning the redistribution of political and economic resources from the more developed republics to the less developed republics and provinces with little to show for it intensified throughout the 1980s. The less developed republics with more federal power, Serbia, wanted more redistribution and greater centralization. The more developed ones with less power, Slovenia and Croatia, demanded decentralization and less redistribution. In time, particularly in the second half of the 80s, the original disagreements about systemic economic affairs turned into quarrels about mutual exploitation with ethno-national populist overtones. The economic and political turmoil led to the crisis of the countries and the system's legitimacy. Already in the early 1980s, surveys found dramatic drops in Yugoslavs feeling positive about the socialist system or the party, and growing doubts the government could solve the situation. And as popular as they were, constitutional and market-oriented economic reforms launched in 1989 were too little too late. In 1990, the first multi-party elections in each republic, won by nation-oriented elites, triggered the country's demise the following year. But on the other side, we could face this cultural and artistic renaissance. Together with the decline of Yugoslavia in economic, political and social terms, you know, the culture erupted as such. So the situation was very, it's always difficult to make comparisons, but I don't know, like Weimar Germany in the 20s. So everything was falling apart. But on the other side, there was a lot of pop culture. Art was very progressive, you know, Charleston was dense, you know, there was a fan, there were feminists, gay lesbian, a lot of things were going on. The thing to know about the 1980s, however, is that it wasn't a single cohesive decade. Rather, there are two phases of the 80s. This eruption of the popular and alternative culture of the civil society in the beginning of 80s. And in the second half, this initiative was taken by those who, in a way, led to the destruction of Yugoslavia. So the at that time, crypto-nationalists who quite quickly then turned to hardcore nationalists. So communist elites that turned to nationalism to remain in power. The real democratization of Yugoslavia started in the early 80s, and then the initiative was taken by those who changed this initiative into the political party program. One way I've seen the period described is decadent socialism in the works of Masha Kolonovic. She teaches contemporary creation literature and culture at the University of Zagreb, studies socialism and post-socialism, and is also an award-winning author of fiction. The term decadent socialism is not like terminus technicus, it's more like a colloquial phrase often used while describing the 80s in Yugoslavia. And it's describing this, I would say, schizophrenic years of Yugoslav period of socialism, where, for example, the imagery of Western consumption was part of the, I will say, mainstream agenda. 
In Czechoslovakia, we could only dream of traveling to Western countries for shopping trips like Yugoslavs did to Trieste or Graz, of jeans readily available, of albums by Western bands of all stripes, or Yugoslav new waves for that matter. Kolanovic emphasizes the openness to Western consumerism in Yugoslavia wasn't new. The country had continuously developed its own form of socialism with market features. It had had an open-door policy since the 1960s. People went shopping and smuggling abroad, watched Western programs, listened to Western music, worked in the West. It was during the 1980s economic crisis that the phenomenon intensified. But at the same time, you have this rise of, you know, nationalistics, uh, discourse, you know, national particularities of Yugoslavia. You have this also uncanny signs of the conflict. Something was just kind of rotten in the air, as we can say. So decadence, it's kind of explaining all this, I will say, various heterogeneous events and discourses which were present in the 80s. In 1985, Pedro Ramet applied another term to this period that I like even more, apocalypse culture. On the one hand, socialism failed to live up to its promises and the economic and political crises led to an atmosphere of resignation, gloom and pessimism. The sense of end was one of these, I will say, possible futures of Yugoslav socialism. Nobody actually was aware that it's going to end it like that. It was not like so obvious, but people were kind of flirting with this idea of the end, but just kind of, I will say, tracing these signs of economical, political crisis, which was evident in that period, especially after the death of Yugoslav leader uh, Josip Broz Tito, where this type of cohesion was just not sustainable, I will say, anymore. At the same time, or perhaps that's why, in this traumatized society, culture became an outlet for airing grievances, expressing alternative opinions, and exploring new discursive territories in order to make sense of it all. It is this inward-looking culture, absorbed in a quest for meaning in uncertain times, at the point where it experiences a crisis of confidence and senses some sort of an end is near, that Ramit calls apocalypse culture. Settled political formulas and social practices can no longer solve current problems, and there is no consensus on how to move forward. So there arises a push for change from all sides in all kinds of directions. Expressions of despair permeate the discourse, social criticism appears in various works, artists push envelopes to incite outrage. This is characteristic of apocalypse culture and indicative of profound social stress, writes Ramit. You have punk bands and Leibach associating socialists with Nazi aesthetics. You have theatrical performances featuring nudity and music bands exalting sexuality of all kinds. You have the re-evaluation in novels, essays, poems, screenplays, but also in newspapers, non-fiction books, studies, or symposia of pretty much everything, including the country's core myths. Tito, now dead, the party, the national liberation struggle and the partisan mythology, the Ustashen, the Chetniks, brotherhood and unity, the Goli Otok prison camp. Everything went, everything was touchable. I never expected that people will talk about freedom and that they will associate freedom with the 1980s. Lubica Spaskowska is a lecturer in European history at the University of Exeter. She is the author of The Last Yugoslav Generation, The Rethinking of Youth Politics and Cultures in Late Socialism, published in 2017. 
She defines the last Yugoslav generation as people who were active in the so-called youth scene and infrastructure at the time, such as musicians, writers, journalists, activists, apparatchiks, politicians, and soldiers, born roughly between 1955 and 1975, and who were of age by the end of the 1980s. This socio-political generation shared the experience of Yugoslavia's breakup as their defining historical trauma. I expected this journalists, um, musicians, rock musicians, punk musicians, to associate freedom with after the fall of socialism, because indeed many of them were imprisoned, or indeed a lot of their lyrics were uh, censored at the time. But on the other hand, what emerged was that they had immense freedom, and that they had this also huge resources from the state, ironically, Uh, So from the League of Socialist Youth that provided that infrastructure in terms of cultural centers, student centers as well, uh, the whole youth press, it was so critical in the 1980s. It was almost schizophrenic what was in this youth press and how, you know, this youth culture was developing because it was a combination of this socialist aesthetics and uh, discourse around minors, etc. But on the next page, you would have, you know, punk photography, or you would have, you know, a very, very strong critique of, of the regime. A lot of these people were able to travel, and they did travel. A lot of them told me they took advantage also of the European rail pass. There were daily flights to London. In that sense, I think being also able to travel added to that intensity. Yeah, being exposed to, for the musicians, of course, to music trends, etc., but also for the activists, because I interviewed also those in the LGBT, for instance, uh, community in Slovenia, uh, who, for whom Berlin then played, played a big role and they could travel, you know, to encounter these activists, uh, for LGBT rights, uh, in Western Europe. So definitely, I think, the freedom of movement and the freedom that uh, they got through having the red passport was something very important. New Wave emerged in Zagreb and Belgrade in the late 1970s and flourished through the first half of the 80s. The Paket Aranjman compilation featuring Belgrade bands Elektrichny Orgasm, Electric Orgasm, Charlo Akrobata, Charlie Chaplin, and Idoli, The Idols, wasn't the first product of New Wave, as punk bands like Pankerty, The Bastards, and Paraf, The Initials, had birthed the scene in 1977. But its impact was perhaps most felt as the springboard of the movement, which became a prime example of apocalypse culture. The sociologist Dalibor Mishina described New Wave as a cultural reaction to the imperfections of new socialist culture and the most consequential popular cultural catalyst of sociocultural and sociopolitical critique in Yugoslav society. New Wave, Mishina says, was an expression of youth's urban consciousness and a critique of the urban experience. It put rock music on the cultural map. They lampooned various aspects of the socialist system and talked about things or in ways that had been kept under the lid. If we're speaking of punk rock or a new wave, this was a sort of like an organic opposition to the state. And it was never conceptualized as a dissent or as would be some other initiatives in other socialist countries at the time. This was a sort of like an intrasystemic critique through popular culture. Martin Pogacar is a researcher at the Ljubljana-based Institute of Culture and Memory Studies. You may remember him from episode 6, Yugoslavia as a Cultural Subversion. The 1990s cultural artistic scene did in fact grasp the point that something has to be changed. Because Yugoslavia, after all the years it existed after the Second World War, it 
uh, somehow did get into an impasse in a way. And there were a variety of different options being thrown around as to what to do. The alternative culture of the 1980s did have, if not answers, at least some ideas about what needed to be done with Yugoslavia, which I think they did recognize as a valid and valuable framework from where to go on. So it was not necessarily the artistic opposition, so to speak, that wanted to see the country fall apart. It was rather the refracting of sentiment through politics that did, in fact, lead to a situation where a lot of people saw Yugoslavia as a problem that cannot be solved. To be sure, New Wave was but one of the era-defining alternative culture trends. New primitives and new partisans made their own original contributions. In fact, New Wave itself wasn't a musically coherent movement. It comprised punk, post-punk, synth-pop, rock. At any rate, paradoxically, as you heard Spaskowska expound, these young critics of socialism were in large part directly or indirectly supported by the very state they criticized. Pocket Arrangement sold 20,000 copies over two printings. To put this into perspective, the same year, Yugoton issued the Yugoslav superstar Zdravko Čolic's new album in 300,000 copies. What Pocket Arrangement didn't achieve in sales, it exceeded in impact and cult status. The compilation is considered one of the most important records of Yugoslav rock music ever. The 1998 book U100, The Best Albums of Yugoslav Rock and Pop Music, lists the album at number two, behind the 1982 album of a pocket participant, Idoli. Their 1980 song, Redko te vidjam sa I Rarely See You With Girls, was probably the second song in Yugoslavia with a gay theme, the first one penned a year earlier by another new wave protagonist, Prljavo Kazalište, Dirty Theater. In 2015, the best PMG Collective covered the song with lyrics translated into Macedonian. <laughs> situation was very, very alive. A lot of things were going on, not only musically, you know, but also when it comes to other elements of alternative and popular culture, from film, from the new literature, from the new independent media. 
I think the 1980s should not be only reduced to the music, right? Um, the cultural scene played a huge role, of course, but I think there were so many other aspects, including, you know, uh, where they overlapped, for example, in radio journalism, uh, youth journalism, but also all these other activisms, including environmental activism, conscientious objection, which was very prominent in Slovenia. There are many other strands of youth activism and the youth scene in the 1980s, apart from music and art and culture that also uh, deserve to be researched in more depth. Now there's like really lots of works we can we can speak about this famous Dubravka Ugrešić uh, novel Stefica uh, Cvek in Jaws of Life when we have these young female characters in search of love but at the same time consuming women's magazines and then you have this movie by Rajko Grlić when you also have this I will say images of abundance but at the same time in this kind of a comedy movie you have uh, sentences where two characters are kind of commenting what is going on and uh, just to remember the year was 1984 when one character is saying it's going to be rough here and people are just going away from Yugoslavia also in the lyrics of new wave bands uh, for example Ekaterina Velika you have this song called America, when the lyrics are saying basically everybody are just kind of going away from Yugoslavia, they want to go to America. The lyrics of new wave bands are kind of having this atmosphere being like explicitly critical about the situation, but still like, you know, promoting this, you know, anarchistic, liberal type of sensibility, which was like really, I will say, interesting for Yugoslavia in that period. Or you have this also uh, Slobodan Shian's movies, dark comedies. You can just feel this kind of schizophrenic atmosphere in all these types of cultural patterns back then. While proposals for change did circulate throughout the 1980s in the highest levels, changes did not occur until late in the game and by then they took on a nationalist mantle. Meanwhile, even as the country came down with a nationalist fever, the youth of this era wanted to preserve Yugoslavia in an improved form. The ethno-national, local, regional sense of belonging and identity did not exclude a sense of Yugoslavness or Yugoslav belonging. So these two identities were not mutually exclusive, but indeed uh, they were complementary for a large part of this uh, generation. For many of them, actually, the ethnic did not have the meaning that it came to have later. Sometimes city, regional identities, you know, being from Ljubljana or being from uh, Belgrade or from a particular part of Belgrade was much more important than being a Serb or a Slovene. What was very stark and prominent is that there was a huge commitment to uh, freedom of speech, freedom of expression. This is something that I would say marked this generation. Smashing whatever taboo was there, you know, either doing it through more visual video art like Borgesia or uh, doing it uh, through lyrics and music, uh, doing it through journalistic articles. They thought that they had the right to critique the system and that's the most normal thing, but not in a way to incite hatred or they thought they can make the Yugoslav system better, that it can become even better. This generation was, I think, very idealistic uh, as well. They thought they could never lose the benefits that they had, uh, but only they could upgrade them. 
but they have to be admired, as I say, for their bravery and courage to speak against what was, in different Republican contexts, different uh, degrees of censorship and different degrees of that authoritarian control. For instance, sometimes bands or uh, journalists were moving from one part of Yugoslavia to the other because if something was published in Belgrade, you could not be prosecuted for it in Croatia, for instance. So they were using also the decentralized Yugoslav system to their own uh, advantage. It was not a uniform authoritarianism that they were critiquing. The specificity of Yugoslavia was that it was always polycentric. Different scenes were appearing in different parts of, of Yugoslavia. When it comes to late 70s and 80s, you know, you had a Slovenian punk, you had a Zagreb and Belgrade new wave. Then you had Sarajevo's new primitivism. Again, an extremely interesting music uh, and, and cultural movement that erupted around 83, 84, 85. Then you had dark wave, industrial, uh, alter pop everywhere, also in other centers like Split or Rijeka, <laughs> not a big city, you know, but extremely vibrant when it comes to subcultures. So the 1980s in Yugoslavia were a very particular, very specific period where a lot of things opened up, but also a lot of gaps and schisms emerged, of course, in terms of politics, all the ethnic entrepreneurs that decided to ride this wave of nationalism. New Wave broke mid-decade, with bands splitting up and forming new ones with different musical orientations, just as the wave of ethno-nationalist discourses was forming. The term 80s music typically conjures synth-pop. A number of bands in Yugoslavia played this kind of music, including Denis and Denis from Rijeka, Videosex from Ljubljana, Beograd and Lucky Pingvini, Light Penguins, from Belgrade. A lesser-known band named Bastion did their synth-pop thing in Skopje. Fun fact, the Golden Globe-winning and Oscar-nominated film director Milcho Manchevsky wrote Bastion's lyrics in Serbo-Croatian. The song Deca Sunca is about the titular children of the sun flying through the night and the day with power and dreams. But it also unsettlingly mentions witnessing suicide and predicts the arrival of unspecified refugees. Apocalypse culture, right?
So that's the 1980s. What Kolanovic, Pogacar, Spaskovska, and others from the lost Yugoslav generation, that is, the Yugoslavs that never were, remember of the decade most distinctly is playing with friends outside their apartment blocks as children. Yugoslavia's dissolution and the 1990s wars marked the end of their childhood. And it was the beginning of remembering the 1980s. In last uh, 30 years, we experienced really different uh, ideospheres of speaking, thinking, feeling about uh, uh, socialism. And it was being, of course, produced in political and cultural discourse. A quick analytical note. The 1980s were, of course, the final full decade of Yugoslavia, socialism, and Yugoslav socialism. The memory of the 1980s is in most aspects pretty much inseparable from the memory of Yugoslavia and of socialism. So when we talk about one in a temporal sense, we are talking about the other two as well. This also accounts for recency bias, whereby the most recent events seem more important. So even though they are or should be analytically distinct, for the sake of simplicity, the three will be used somewhat interchangeably here. Kolanovic sees the cultural memory of socialism in Yugoslavia evolve in four phases over the last 30 years. Immediately after the breakup of socialism and, and war in, in Yugoslavia, we were in this part of uh, rush revisionism where socialism was kind of reduced to this idea of totalitarian culture, dictatorship, where especially Croatia, yeah, that would, that would Croatian nationalists say, say uh, could not like, you know, uh, maintain its own independence. And so you can see that, for example, in history textbooks where there's no no single word about some positive values of, of socialism. And it was something commonly shared among, I will say, all uh, former socialist uh, countries in that period. You know, they just kind of buried socialism. This was the time, the Croatian historian Hrvoje Klasic told me back in episode 10, Croatia's history illness, when white became black and black became white. Heroes from the socialist era became villains and villains heroes. The country of brotherhood and unity became a prison of nations. The wars of Yugoslav dissolution, fueled by ethno-nationalism as they were, and their aftermath provided a backdrop. But even during the time that the dominant discourse denied the positives or even the existence of socialism, Yugoslavia, the 1980s, people found a way to keep the memory alive. For Martin Pogacar, who was born in 1977 in Slovenia, Yugoslav pop culture became a source of subversion. When I was old enough to see how the new system was being installed, and I kind of had a bit of a problem with that because it was trying to just eradicate everything that came before, and this for me was not really acceptable. This was this kind of a trigger, I would say now, I didn't really know back then, that got me into searching for stuff and looking for music and films from the former Yugoslavia. This was the time of high school, and it was a sort of opposition to Slovenian nationalism. It was always channeled through, at least for teenagers at that time, through some kind of subversive use of Yugoslav pop culture. And this was really uh, quite a formative experience. It was an expression of, look, what you are making us forget. And we didn't want to forget that. Because what happened clearly, especially I can speak for Slovenia, after 1991, Yugoslav music and Yugoslav cinema were ostracized from the media. You, you, you could no longer hear any music that was not Slovenian or Western. This is where the subversion started, because we kind of using that music for, you know, fun parties or whatever, and even playing it. There was also a lot of bands that did 
played that kind of music. We saw that as an expression of disagreement with uh, nationalization of the country and also the limitation of uh, cultural space. For Spaskovska, who was born in Skopje in the then Socialist Republic of Macedonia in 1981, coming of age went hand in hand with looking back at the culture of her childhood years. Me and my friends were very much into heavy metal and punk and, you know, so that whole 80s mainstream aesthetics was very much, I I didn't like it at all, neither me nor my friends, so we made fun of it. But slowly we started discovering that Yugoslav uh, scene, and of course it's also about age, because you have to start understanding what they were singing about, uh, understanding the lyrics, and that only happened in the late 1990s as as a teenager, you know, you, you start singing the songs and you start uh, understanding that it's much more than the music as well. Then we were going to the uh, student uh, cultural center for these gigs, etc. So this is how slowly me and my friends, we became introduced kind of through this older generation. We got to, to know, we got immersed into this culture and heritage. But very soon, like in the like early 2000, uh, uh, nostalgia for socialism appeared because you know people just were you know, remembering their own youth or their own self in that period, and also uh, since capitalism didn't you know fulfill these promises of you know bright future which will now come to present after you know we get rid of socialism, people were starting to remember all those good things in socialism you know such as you know. Uh, secure uh, health system, free education, uh, you know, steady jobs. Uh, but later on, and and now we are like witnessing this enormous commercialization of nostalgia. Capitalism find a way to turn nostalgia into one of the products of capitalism. Especially after 2000, after this topic of war was kind of starting to fade in dominant Croatian uh, literature, this new wave of, you know, presenting socialism took part and you have like pretty much, you know, works of fiction coming from, you know, writers such as uh, Miljenko Jergovic or uh, Ratko Cvetnic, Goran Tribuson, of course, Dubravka Ugrešić, some of them are being like uh, nostalgic about the 80s, such as Tribuson are being kind of cynical or like Kratko Cvetnic, where they're just kind of, you know, flirting constantly with with this idea that everything was like rotten and it was just kind of waited to be ended. Or you have also this, uh, you know, type of discourse, uh, which uh, Miljenko Jergovic is often using in his work, where like this narrator is kind of aware of all the historical events are not taking this particular emotional stance, but it's just kind of playing with, I will say, kind of the irony of the history per se. For example, he's doing that in his uh, novel, which is translated also in English and published in States, uh, Walnut Mansion, Dvoriodoraha. This reopening of the cultural space in what had been Yugoslavia unfolded on the backdrop of the death of two major representatives and symbols of late 1980s and 1990s ethno-nationalism. In 1999, on my birthday in fact, the president of Croatia, Franjo Tuđman, died. And on October 5th, 2000, in Serbia, Slobodan Milosevic was deposed in the so-called bulldozer revolution and in 2001 shipped off to The Hague to stand trial for crimes against humanity and war crimes. 
after uh, 1999, after the region kind of more or less got back to peaceful movement and easier movement across borders, a lot of these bands uh, came touring. It felt like, you know, there was an interruption. Uh, and then suddenly, you know, this scene again uh, kind of was being revived. The knots were the decade when the post-Yugoslav culture makers began to look back at the accomplishments of the antebellum period. In 2003, the documentary Sretno Dieta, Happy Child, borrowed its title from a Prljavo Kazalište song. Essentially an autobiography of the writer and director Igor Mirković, the film features interviews and period footage with many of New Wave's protagonists. Happy Child was just the most famous of several documentaries about the music from the 1980s in this period. New Wave albums saw their first round of reissues in this decade, including Pocket Arrangement in 2007, and a number of analytical works on New Wave were published as well. The 2009 documentary from Serbia, Robna Kuća, Department Store, covered in its 29 episodes a range of Yugoslav-era phenomena, from partisan films to sports victories, Sarajevo Olympics, Bielo Dugme and other popular performers, to New Wave, which spanned three episodes. First feature films came out with storylines taking place in the 1980s, like Karaula, The Border Post, in 2006, which was also a co-production of five of the six ex-Yugoslav republics. Starting, uh, for example, in the mid-2000s, uh, there was a new generation of historians and cultural analytics who just move on their perspective for this totalitarian history, big events and, you know, big actors of the history, more to everyday life, popular culture, where actually this sense of uh, memory of socialism became historically uh, research. And lots of, I will say, good and relevant studies were produced in that period and are being produced right now with this new generation of intellectuals and academics and even students who didn't live in socialism, who were born away in the years uh, uh, after the dissolution of Yugoslavia. But their memory is also kind of, you know, burdened, I don't know, maybe by the experience of their parents and, and so we are kind of bouncing between these two extremes, speaking about socialism, which is part of this radicalization of, of public sphere, especially, I mean, everywhere in former Yugoslavia and especially in Croatia. And I just think we have to, you know, go beyond these, you know, extremes and see how was life, for example, lived in those years. The fourth phase of remembering socialism in Yugoslavia, particularly of the 1980s, has unfolded since the Great Recession. We are seeing the return of political discourse about socialism and that some, you know, important, I will say, values of socialism, the ones that I mentioned before, were being just politically put out on the table in this time of capitalist precarity and, and this feeling of unsecureness in every way. This is the period where the nostalgic discourse acquires emancipatory overtones. What is extremely important for me is this political nostalgia, emancipatory nostalgia, which is active, which is engaged, which criticizes the present from the perspective of better past. Nostalgia can be also a strong political force, also for the criticism of what is going on today in Eastern Europe and especially in ex-Yugoslavia, so against ethnonationalism and against neoliberalism. Looking back at the times when music and film and culture was good and diverse nations lived side by side in peace and when people were more secure and safer and could travel more freely, sows, according to Velikonia, the seeds of social dissension against today's ruling ideological constructions and political practices. 
In the political arena, things are changing in places. In Bosnia and Herzegovina this year, a non-majority party, lefty candidate, won election as mayor of Sarajevo. In Croatia in 2020, a left-of-center president was elected as well as the first-ever anti-capitalist member of parliament. And in the local elections last month, a green-left coalition candidate became mayor of Zagreb, and in split, a center-party candidate won. New fresh players are in the arena, and I see, you know, all those big narratives and promises are also shown as non-valid, like also just one type of fiction, you know, what, what capitalism actually brought people just kind of experienced by the self, you know, but losing jobs, you know, shaky healthcare system. We also had this, uh, you know, earthquakes in Croatia last year where, where, you know, the buildings are still not being, you know, repaired. And so people are kind of, you know, re-articulating, I think, rethinking. So denial and revisionism of socialism, nostalgia, later commercialized for socialism, the study of everyday life in late socialism, and emancipatory, if not revolutionary, potential of socialism as a political alternative, or socialism as a possible future. Importantly, while these phases of remembering socialism and Yugoslavia developed one after another, they have overlapped over time and over segments of society. Revisionism is still very much a problem, particularly on the right. Entrepreneurs exploit nostalgia, specifically Yugo-nostalgia, for profit. In the cultural production, it would it would be, for example, unimaginable 20 years ago to have some type of, you know, exhibition about socialism. But in the last 10 years, we really had, you know, you know, socialist culture became kind of, you know, integrated into, you know, cultural heritage. And so, of course, we can speak how it is being presented, what is omitted, what is put out there, but still. And then we have this more more perspectives and, and more books about, you know, certain topics. And uh, I think more and more we, the research of socialism is being like pretty much, I would say, developed now in former Yugoslavia. From Croatian perspective, public speech about uh, socialism is also very heterogeneous. You have, for example, this exhibition in the Museum of Contemporary, you know, art. There was a like big exhibition. Uh, I don't know now. It's maybe like eight or nine years ago about socialist modernism. We had like quite few evocation of socialism and like 80s in contemporary post-Yugoslav culture. The Croatian TV show Crnobjeli Svijet, Black and White World, whose four seasons aired from 2015 to this year, was the first such television product about the 1980s in Croatia. It too borrowed its title from a Prljavo Kazalište song, perhaps unsurprisingly since Mirković created and wrote the show. It's well done, by the way. The 2015 exhibition, The 80s, Sweet Decadence of the Postmodern, dedicated prominent space to performance, photography, design, fashion, theater, literature, and other art forms in Croatia from the Golden Era. In 2017, the company Brand New Retro opened Zagreb 80s Museum in the city's historic center, which recreates an apartment filled with period items. The Facebook group Osamdesete u Zagrebu, 80s in Zagreb, which was created in 2014 for all children who were born and survived the 70s and 80s in Zagreb, has nearly 40,000 likes. The Zagreb-based label Fox and His Friends has been releasing music rarities from the 80s, such as on the compilation Socialist Disco Dancing Behind Yugoslavia's Velvet Curtain 1977-1987 to since 2017. I could go on. 
Elsewhere around former Yugoslavia, an upcoming book edited by Latinka Perovic and Sonja Biserko will look back at various aspects of the 1980s. It is in his chapter on pop culture that Mitya Velikonia calls what we're talking about the cultural virus of the 80s. In Serbia, the exhibition Three Decades of New Wave toured the major cities in 2010. The 2017 documentary 250 Stepenica 250 Steps, looked at the world championship of the Yugoslav junior basketball team 30 years prior. We're talking guys like Vlade Divac and Toni Kukoc. By the way, that same year, Yugoslavia's junior teams were world champions in football and handball as well. The Kragujevac-based band Vesele 80, Mary 80, covers music from the decade. In Sarajevo, the exhibition Yugoslavia 1989 looked at that year 30 years before from a variety of areas and angles. Despite the sad state of the 1984 Olympics facilities, the Olympics and their era are remembered in Sarajevo fondly, be it in museums or the market, where the mascot Vučko lives on. In Ljubljana, the 2016-2017 trilogy of exhibitions at the Museum of Modern Art titled The 80s Through the Prism of Events, Exhibitions and Discourses focused on the decade and its legacy. The Sarajevo 84 restaurant is a nostalgic space of Cevapi, Kokta and Chochkis. Again, I could go on. All these type of various narratives, I think they're all welcome because they are, you know, just putting focus on certain type of, 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 of a layer, popular cultural layer of, of socialism. It's cool in a way to kind of make this connection, especially with the new generation who are, even though they were not born, not experienced the period, they're like listening to that music because it's just good music and some really, I will say, good cultural products from that period. It's part of this, I will say, larger craze about all this 80s new wave, you know, the protagonists, which were kind of, you know, young uh, individuals and, you know, nonconformists in that period later became, I will say, you know, the leader actors of the media scene. And now they, since they are now kind of <laughs> infiltrated in the media, they had, I will say, this privilege to speak about their youth and their pop culture and their kind of mythologize this period. Uh, <laughs> partly, uh, <laughs> there was something a little bit kind of irritating in this, I would say, generational mythologization of everything. There's like this balance when speaking about socialism where, you know, these 80s are dominating the speech, you know, in our days because, you know, one generation is particularly, you know, monopolizing, you know, their speech about, you know, their youth and, and their culture and their popular culture, you know, maybe just because the protagonists of the previous, you know, years are not so, they're not holding all the resources the time pass by and, Spaskoska too found that the last Yugoslav generation in large part continued the career trajectories they were on in the 1980s. Journalists tended to remain in that world except now they are at the helm of publications. Musicians kept making music and selling out reunion tours. The youth organization functionaries stuck with politics, reaching in some cases the highest levels, like a former president of North Macedonia or the current prime minister of Slovenia. So the people who created, documented, and evolved the culture of the time in the 1980s continue to do so, except now from the positions of authority, money, and power. And, as Kolanovic, Pogacar, and Spaskovska themselves show, the last generation has been turning to the 80s as a way to explore the parts of their own biographies they didn't understand at the time because they were too young. Put another way, if the last Yugoslav generation are today's culture makers, the lost generation are the culture explainers. 
and perhaps even recreators, as in the case of Bojan Bojko, the co-founder in 2016 of the Zagreb music label Vishemanje Zauvijek, more or less forever, which he runs, as he puts it, out of love and enthusiasm. The philosophy behind our selection of artists, we actually have three criterias that they need to fulfill. First, we need to like the music. Second, uh, they uh, need to sing in uh, their native tongues. And third, the, the band or the artist needs to be called or named in their native tongue. And apart from that, we're open to any genre or uh, any, any style of music. And yet, the music Boyko and the other co-founder Marko Vukovic like, with their 15 or so artists the label represents, sounds very much like the 18th synth-pop. We didn't do it on purpose, that's for sure. We just liked those bands and thought that uh, we could work with them. Uh, it just happened that all of the bands, or most of the bands, had this similar uh, sound that, that one could hear. I was born in uh, 81, so uh, I was, let's say, a child in the 80s, and I didn't pay much attention to the arts because I was having fun, you know, playing outside with friends and so on. But uh, then later in the 90s, I started to discover uh, everything that happened the decade before. I love a lot of pop music from the 80s, which was I think very, very good there and uh, the production and everything was booming. I mean, from every, every decade, you can, you can have something specific and feel good about it and love that. As I already said, it was not intentionally <laughs> that I picked the 80s as sort of a starting ground for my musical, whatever, art taste. But it just happened that uh, maybe uh, that period of time was with me when I grew up in the 90s, you know. In fact, the two started the label in order to put out Vukovic's band's debut album. Since then, Svemirko has become well-known and popular across former Yugoslavia and symptomatic of the revival of synthwave there.
if you look at the music, yes, there are bands that sort of recreate the sound and the feel and also the visual aesthetics of the 80s. Yugoslavia is not that big of uh, of territory, maybe 20 or 22 million people, which is uh, not that much. Uh, the music scene is not that big. The bands that do those kind of 80s aesthetics uh, in their music and, and uh, everything else. You know, those are maybe five or maybe 10 bands. That's not that much. I would certainly say Semirko, who was uh, first on those uh, new wave of 80s revival, let's call it like that. I don't consider that an 80s revival band. I consider it as a contemporary alternative pop music, which happens to have connections with 80s style in, in music specifically. Other labels, I don't see. I don't see any other label like us. Maybe Balkan Veliki from North Macedonia, but basically that's it. I found another generational example of keeping the dream of the '80s alive in the Yugoslav diaspora. The Yugo Project is a band in Cleveland, Ohio that covers Yugo rock songs. My name is Dejan Sharac and I'm still trying to figure out who I am. I'm a lead singer in this band. Hailing from Knjaževac, Serbia, Sharac emigrated to the US in 2010 and works as a maintenance director in a healthcare facility. Robert Bartulovic, I'm, I'm keys on, on a band. I'm actually born in France but grew up in Bosnia, a little bit Croatia. I just kind of ran away from problems like war. Bartolovic came to the U.S. in 1998 via Germany and works as a self-proclaimed baby blue-collar guy in a machine shop office. Uh, the old guy. This is Ivo. Actually, it's really Ivan Matic, but everybody calls me Ivo. I'm the drummer of the band. I am the elder statesman of the group. I was born in 1967, but I was born in, in America. Uh, my parents immigrated to the uh, United States in 1966. From Serbia's Shumadia region near Kragujevac. I uh, have my own small business. I'm an industrial mechanic. I repair heavy equipment. If it's got nuts and bolts, I fix it. So at least try to. <laughs> the youngest member of Yugo Project, lead guitarist Vladimir Bokun, was born in 1993 in Bece Vojvodina. Yeah, I guess so I was born during the time that our country was uh, falling apart. So I never got to see the ugly side, but obviously I heard all, all the stories. And I also heard stories about how good life was before all, all that stuff happened. After living in Cleveland for eight years, Bokun is now in London working towards his PhD in cytomegaloviruses. The band's marketing guy and manager, Vanya Dimitrievich, was born in 1976 in Zagreb. I do remember Yugoslavia uh, fondly as a country. Dimitrievich came to the U.S. in 1997. My great-grandfather was in uh, prison during the Second World War, and then after the prisons got liberated, he came here to Cleveland a fun fact, uh, I was here in 1979 with my family, and my great-grandfather wanted to actually kind of give my parents everything that they wanted uh, just to stay here. And at that point in time, my parents firmly said, well, screw America, Yugoslavia is the place to be. And, you know, uh, history, 20 years after that, we came back to the beginning point. But at 79, nobody kind of knew what was going to happen, and everybody kind of lived and liked Yugoslavia a lot. Yugo Project formed in 2018, growing organically out of a few friends jamming in the basement and others circulating in and out of bands. Everybody came in from different areas, 
and we all had a common interest to play. As to the band's name. When we were looking for a new uh, name of the band, Yugo Project kind of came up as a mixture of, you know, Yugo Car, which we dearly love and reminds us of our country, but as kind of running joke it goes, it's like Yugo always needs fixing, you know? <laughs> so it's always some kind of a project going on. So with the band, as as we were trying to kind of meld everything together, it was like always a project to, you know, keep up with everything, keep going on, and keep everything together. We're, we were just kind of like now talking hanging out and and after uh after rehearsal they were saying yeah it's like oh yugo project that sounds about right the music that brought the guys of yugo project together was yugo rock basically hardened pop rock from former yugoslavia those are the songs that everyone recognizes so usually when we started playing we put a like an initial list of i don't know like maybe 20 of those songs and we started with that but it was always easy to add those types of songs that everyone knew and everyone recognized and that we knew people wanted to hear live because obviously if you live in America, you don't get a chance to listen to a live rock band playing these songs. It's only in, in Yugoslavia that you can exp- still experience that. Like the choice was easy. We just were supposed to put all these songs together that everyone was used to hearing in their youth and start with that. And obviously uh, the result was good. Uh, you know, people were enjoying that. Yugo Project's first song was Tishina, Silence, by Bajaga i Instruktori, Bajaga and the Instructors, an uber-popular Yugoslav-slash-Serbian band formed in 1984. In my humble opinion, I think that there's actually a part in the middle that uh, Ivo and Vlado and the bass player are going solo, and I think Bajaga would, pardon my French, probably pee his pants if he saw that. I mean, it's electrifying. The song came out in 1988. The bulk of Yugo Project's 15-strong setlist comprises songs from the 1980s by bands from nearly every former republic, including Piloti and Galia from Serbia, Prljavo Kazalište and Parni Valjak from Croatia, Lebisol from Macedonia. There are also Riblja Chorba tunes from 1979 and 1983 respectively. However, an important thing to note here is that, as in the case of the Vishemanje Zauvijek label, rather than a deliberate choice in terms of playing music from a certain era, it's all about the music the guys and their audiences love. It just so happens that the 1980s were a motherload for all kinds of music, including Yugorok. A lot of music that persists here in the diaspora is folk music, and there's people that really want to hear rock and roll. We actually have people from all former Yugoslavia coming from everywhere. Well, all corners of it. Um, all corners of it. What's funny is the, the, the age difference in the crowds. We have people in the audience are there, uh, older generations who watch these bands when they were in former Yugoslavia play live, and then you have their kids. They're listening to songs that are 30 years old, and they're digging it, and it's like they know it through their parents growing up with it. So The music that band plays transcends ages, eras. It's fun for everybody. What new country, now that Yugoslavia doesn't exist anymore, what new country you come from, people don't care. They just come together with the music. There's really no hatred or animosity or anything like that. When we play, I mean, doesn't matter who comes from where, like Croatia, Bosnia, or Serbia, we all get together and music uh, definitely keep us together and um, it's just fun. In his 1995 essay, Twilight of the Idols, Recollections of a Lost Yugoslavia, Aleš Debeljak writes about his devotion to Yugo rock. 
I sought an authentic way of being that could bring me close to people who would understand joy and sadness without a lot of unnecessary words. It afforded me the rare chance to live in a multicultural society long before that term was co-opted as the official protective coloring of the politically correct." End quote. Though the childhood in a common state is lost forever, Debeljak and millions of other ex-Yugoslavs continue to listen to Yugoslav rock because that music is a magic formula that secures our passage to that refuge among the eternally young landscapes of the spirit in which we will always be at home. We've had people that have not, nothing to do with forming Yugoslavia at all come up to us and go, I don't know what you guys are singing, I don't know what you guys are playing, but all I know is it kicks you know, proverbial ass. The royal behind. You it's know, a, so, it's a show. It's and a the show. crowd's just, you know, the crowds are fantastic. Everybody is into it. Everybody's dancing. Everybody's having fun. Um, and, you know, everybody can recognize rock and roll, the riffs and, and, and the beats and stuff like that. So you don't have to understand the words. Do you ever see the flag of former Yugoslavia at your gigs? Hell yeah. So, yeah. That, that's a Robert saying, hell yeah. And this is Vanya. So, yeah, last our last gig, there was a kid that showed up, actually, that drives a Yugo to this very age. So, actually, yeah, in Cleveland, believe it or not, he has a legit Yugo 65. The kid drives it everywhere. Our last gig here in Cleveland is a, that same kid brought a Yugoslavia flag and we hung it up. Actually, the funny story is that the owner is actually Croatian. So there we hung up a Yugoslavian flag next to a Croatian flag. Nobody minded it. Everybody was having fun. It's all good. I mean, it's like all, you know, music unites everything, I think. Um, yeah, there's sometimes, you know, naysayers and stuff, but everybody that comes there, we don't ask who you are, you know, where you come from. We don't ask. Everybody's enjoying themselves. We came from all over the place and they are hungry for something that all connects us, and which is the music at this point. Yugo Project continues to be a cover band, but they recently ventured into new territory, original songs, though still in the same Yugo rock vein. I played one of them, Vremeye, It Is Time, in episode 26, Diaspora Voices Part 2, where it fit the theme of leaving. The song was in fact inspired by Bokun's departure for London just as the pandemic was hitting. Thus far, Vremeye is the band's one and only released original track, but they have a few more ready to go. <laughs> Osmih je sporadičan Svaka noć sve mleđa je Svakoj stvari vreme je Loše besti oko nas Novi dana jahuje Ne čuje se dobar glas Svakoj stvari vreme je Though the pandemic and Bokun's relocation put a damper on Yugo Project's activities, the guys are sticking together, like brothers, they say. Most importantly, their work and, let's say, attitude also point to another reason for the 80s to remain relevant. We never emphasized enough that uh, despite the diversity among us and our audience, we always try to promote putting those uh, nationalistic differences aside and going back to the times where didn't really matter as much where you were from. 
And it's always a, an important topic because well, actually today I was watching a show uh, from back home where they were talking about how this issue is just as present now as it was during the war of uh, like Croatians hating Serbs and Serbs cre- uh, hating Croatians and so on and so forth. But we never had a problem with that except for those few uh, exceptions. That's also an important like encapsulating feature of our band, like the uniting factor, I should say. I think there's a word for that, Vlado. It's called Bratstvo Brotherhood and unity. That's, that's what Yugoslavia was founded on. And I think that's what we try to kind of keep up. I mean, maybe it's unknowingly, but that's what the end product is in the end. This was the true essence of Yugoslavia, not a political system, not the economy. Everything was going down. But, you know, this cultural, civil society element. Mitya Velikonia, the Yugo nostalgia expert again. And this, in a way, survived. Yugoslavia survived in terms of culture, in terms of friendships, in terms of different ties, not only old ties, but also new ties, beyond the political frame as such. Today, even nostalgics don't dream anymore, political nostalgics don't dream anymore about the resurrection of Yugoslavia, third Yugoslavia or whatever. But they are dreaming about the reconstruction of today's society along the lines that functioned back in Yugoslav times. And this multicultural element, you know, and especially popular culture, alternative culture, was one of them. Kolanovic, too, underscores the generational turnover isn't the main driving force behind the continued revival of the 1980s. It's the bigger cultural space shared and enjoyed with people who speak nearly identical or very similar languages until it was no more that the 80s continue to offer. It was also like the last coherent popular cultural, I would say, you know, event. After that, you know, all these scenes, it disintegrated into, you know, particular scenes. There was also like a cultural gap, you know, especially in communication with Serbia, you know, you know, in the 90s, just later, like, you know, literary festivals and exchanges, you know, in the concerts and so were kind of make a new connection with the scene. But that was kind of the last common popular cultural event. That, that is also why it brings so much nostalgia as well. We all speak more or less the same language. We understand each other very well. And I think the language is kind of, you know, based to open the dialogue and to connect uh, better, you know, and also the music and films and, and TV shows. So the gaze locked upon the era when all these now independent nations were all together in a common space expresses and increasingly manifests the desire to replicate those connections. I won't say it's a natural phenomenon, but it certainly reminds me of nature's tendency to favor diversity. At any rate, in 2009, Tim Judah coined the term Yugosphere to describe this phenomenon of people across former Yugoslavia reconnecting along cultural and social lines. Says Mitya Velikonia, These creators should be credited for the fact that the post-Yugoslav cultural space has outlived its former Yugoslav political space. And that speaks less about the 1980s and more about the current times in these so-called independent countries. Socialism, the good parts anyway, and Yugoslavia, the brotherhood and unity part anyway, versus neoliberalism, even illiberalism, and ethnonationalism, looking to the future versus the glorious past. As Mitya Valikonia writes, the cultural and artistic reflections of the Yugoslav 1980s offer a politically relevant radical otherness to the dysfunctioning post-Yugoslav state today. They say that if there was an alternative inside and outside the state framework then, there is or there could be one now, end quote. So what Martin Pogacar in the 1990s experienced as subversive continues to be so. 
The continued popularity of Yugoslav music today may not be just an expression of nostalgia, but also a resistance strategy, a reaction to the imperfections of the current reality. Pokachar has argued that Yugoslav rock, and primarily Yugoslav new wave, has lost little cultural value and subversive charge, and it has retained much of its potency and appeal. If during the 1980s Yugoslav rock was the prime outlet for system critique, during the 1990s it became the prime outlet for post-socialist new state system critique. Today, New Wave presents an outlet for the recomposition of musical preferences, as well as a vehicle of nostalgia as opposition to the post-1991 socio-political orientations of post-Yugoslav societies. Of course, the 80s revival, or if you will, nostalgia for the 80s, is a global phenomenon. Simon Reynolds, a fantastic scholar, a musical critic and uh, art uh, theoretic, wrote a fantastic book in the early 2010s, and it's entitled Retromania. So he says from the 90s on, you know, we are facing these re-decades. Everything is going back from, you know, <laughs> popular culture, Hollywood films, to the fashion, uh, to alternative at the end. So this is a global phenomenon. This turn to previous decades, not that far away, not to, I don't know, 20s or 30s. But, you know, nostalgia or retro always refer to the recent past. You know, it's not about, I don't know, Victorian times or uh, things like that. Reissues, remastering, reunions, rehabilitations, and revitalizations. Velikonya again. The 80s are suddenly the closest cultural, aesthetic, and artistic inspiration worthy of new use in completely changed circumstances after the end of history. End quote. Or it could simply be, as Chuck Klosterman says, that what we think of as nostalgia for the 80s is merely a function of constant repetition, so that the only reason we think of something as good is that we've heard it so many times we conclude it must be good. Anyway. And I can see it here in, in Britain as well and in the West. It has to do perhaps something also with the um, uh, entire malaise or how do we say uh, of post-capitalism. This is not a scientific, I haven't done any research on, uh, on this, uh, but there is something about that culture. And also it's very much, as you say, how media are responding to this. So for instance, the BBC has all these shows about here, the 80s or even the early 90s, you know, what was the most popular you know, movies, uh, the most sold uh, albums in so-and-so year, etc. So I think it's very human to look back, right, and to reflect. Uh, so for an older generation, I think that's completely natural and expected. What puzzles me more is why a younger generation also in, in the Balkans, in the former Yugoslavia, so people who have absolutely no connection whatsoever with the former Yugoslavia, who were born in the 1990s, why they show an interest and even, you know, display signs of Yugo nostalgia. Again, it goes to this, uh, goes back to the definition of uh, nostalgia as not a statement about the past, but very much a state about the present. So um, I believe, you know, the Yugoslav heritage and also that culture and the threat return is used as a way to critique what's in the present. Alongside the reissue of the remastered 40th anniversary edition of Paket Aranjman, which by the way sold out in record time, the successor to the major Yugoslav label Yugoton reissued 40th anniversary editions of the debut albums of Paket Aranjman bands Elektrichny Orgazam and Šarlo Akrobata, as well as the debut album of the legendary Zagreb band Haustor. Accompanying these re-releases was the documentary New Wave 40 Years Later. Elsewhere, the exhibition New Wave in Belgrade, Paket Aranjman, 1981-2021, at the Kalemegdan Fortress, presented period photographs of the scene. 
And again, articles upon articles mark the anniversary and the reissue as well. So, there's the 1980s. There's the revival of, or nostalgia for, the 1980s. For Kolanovich and others, the whole phenomenon doesn't come without issues. When you are just, you know, mythologizing, then you are kind of omitting, you know, some other aspects of the period. But that's why, you know, you have to just check out other resources. Mythologizing is just one particular side of the story of the period. Just saying everything was cool and we had the great music is kind of, you know, putting some other problems, you know, and experiences under the carpet. If I will teach my students about the 80s and just, you know, teaching them about new wave, you know, it will be very small niche, you know, to perceive the whole period, even though it will be good and valuable. There is something which is just reducing and uh, reducive in this fetishizing, you know, these products, cultural products from, you know, this uh, era. What I maybe miss in all this narrative is a more politically profound question which are now burdening citizens, you know, especially workers in today's uh, time. And I think uh, the, the works from socialism, such as Black Wave Cinema, was, uh, I will say, exposing those questions, I will say, more profoundly. In commenting on the latest reissue of Paket Aranjman, Carlo Raffanelli underscores the mythological or even prophetic qualities of the Yugoslav New Wave that Kolonovic alluded to. But placing apocalypse culture of the Yugoslav 80s on an untouchable nostalgic pedestal and highlighting the uniqueness of the fruitful period, he says, diminishes the chances of the current creative generations to create something authentic and original themselves. By turning the legacy of New Wave into a kind of scripture, we lose the potential for change and the shock of the new that it brought. And finally, Alexander Dragash proposes it's time to stop romanticizing New Wave because, well, they had it easy, supported as these artists were by the state, by peace, by a larger market. We should instead be focusing on supporting the pop culture of today. In declining my invitation to come on the show, the creator of Happy Child and Black and White World, Igor Mirkovich, wrote he was fed up with the 80s and talking about the 80s. When I compared the production of the 1980s, specifically music in Yugoslavia, with that in my native Czechoslovakia, I see how culturally deprived we were. It's not only the fact that 50% of the albums listed in the Rolling Stone magazine's ranking of greatest albums from ex-Yugoslavia, 1955 to 2015, are from the 1980s. It's the new and varied genres and styles and movements. It's the freedom to say pretty much whatever in the lyrics. I mean, censors in Slovakia had the title and lyrics of a popular song changed from Black Flower to White Flower because black was too dark and depressive. It had been a long time since I made new musical discoveries, so I enjoy listening to the 80s music from Yugoslavia. I also use the songs as language lessons. But after working on this episode for so much longer than I had planned, well, I'm going to play me some Dubioza Collective, Repetitor, or the Beat Fleet, and live in the now. That's all for this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia. Thank you for listening. Find additional information, song embeds, links, and the transcript of this episode at rememberingyugoslavia.com podcast. 
Outro music courtesy of Robert Petrich. Additional music by Detective Spook and Hugo Project. Songs by Bastion, PMG Collective and Svemirko played with permission and eternal gratitude. Buy their music. Special thanks to Billy Adelman, Emma Pavlovich, Martin Petkovsky and Maya Pupovac, as well as Flora Pitrolo and A Colder Consciousness Records, Mirko Popov and PMG Recordings, and Bojan Bojko and Vishemanie Zauviek. I am Peter Korchniak. Ciao! Thank you.